Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be uplifted, empowered and revived by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now let's get into this week's message. Welcome to all of you. It means the world uh, to spend my Sunday morning with you. I know you could have been so many other places. Um, But I feel like in the house of God is the best place to be. So the first thing I want to say is a repeat of what Pete just said, but I just want to express this to you right here. Um, Happy Father's Day. Uh, Happy Father's Day. Yeah, yeah. So thankful, grateful for the gift of fathers in our life. And um, this is one of those days like many of these cultural holidays, days we celebrate a specific person in our life or role that has always has mixed emotions, doesn't it? There's, there's the beautiful gift of fatherhood in our life, but then there's also the identification maybe of, of that that we wish we had or what we had we wish we had a different version of. Um, but what I love about this day and this gathering is all of us have something in common and that is we have the Father of Lights. And he is celebrating you today, and he's looking on this gathering. And maybe, maybe you grew up with an incredible father. Um, I got to experience that gift in my life after, after marrying Stacy and her dad. Greg, if you're watching, thank you for the awesome father that you are, the man of God that you are. Um, maybe like you, I never remember living in a home with my with my natural father, but God has done incredible things in my life to provide that in, um, in other ways through other people. And I'm so thankful for that gift, for the gift of fathers. Can, any, can anybody say thank, thank you, Lord, for the gift of fathers um, in, in our lives? So I'm, I'm thankful for you. And I want to do something today I've never done um, publicly, but will you indulge me just for a minute? Because it's Father's Day, will this be your, can I like choose my own Father's Day gift from you to me? It's going to be this moment. I want, I want to honor my children. Um, uh, Chloe, Olivia, and Claire are here um, this morning. And, um, you know, pastor's kids have sometimes a reputation, don't they? And one of the reasons is, is because it's a tough job. Uh, hey, there they are. This was, our, this was my first Father's Day in the UK, eight years ago. Um, so eight years ago on Father's Day, there's my little ones. And um, Claire right here, she just um, did her last GCSE on Friday. So, so pastor's kids have an interesting, um, interesting life. Yeah, when I grew up, my dad was a banker, and I never went to his office, and people expected me to give them advice or to be the perfect model of investment and bonds and healthy uh, financial portfolio. Um, but pastor's kids, there's a unique expectation on them when they show up to church because of what their parents, um, because of who their parents are and what their parents do. It really is a family-wide calling. 
And um, I am amazed by you kids. I'm amazed by your grace, by your sacrifice to move halfway around the world, um, to leave family, friends that you loved, the home that you loved, and to be serving. My two oldest are literally serving um, back there in the back right now. I wonder if you just help me love on my kids this morning. Just put your hands together and just help, help show them love today. Thank you. Thank you for that. Many mornings, many Sunday mornings, I'm, I'm in the living room early, 6, 6.30, praying and, or message prepping, and I will hear a clunk, 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 clunk down the stairs, and I can look through the hallway door, and one of my kids is fully dressed and heading out the door to come to church to come help set up. And I didn't ask them. I've never asked them to be on a serve team. Um, they, they put themselves on the rota. They show up. We were having a meeting this week talking about, you know, planning some upcoming services, and we talked about a meeting with our management team that, our, that the Reeser family was going to be out of town, and the team had no concern with Stacy and I leaving. But they said, the Reeser girls aren't going to be on setup. How are we going to survive? <laughs> so that shows, that shows who's really valuable um, in the Reeser household. But thank you, girls. I love you. Um, also, this morning, we're taking a, a few-week break from our current uh, teaching chapter, Single Dating Married. Anybody enjoyed this chapter? Anybody glad for a little break? Don't answer, don't answer, don't answer. So we're taking a little break. Um, I'm going to speak on Father's Day um, topics today. And then next week, Pastor John uh, Bunjo is going to be with us from Uganda. So he leads over 100 churches there in Uganda, so just a very kind of a budding new ministry. Two weeks from now, Pastor Michael Wood's going to be sharing. And then three weeks, we're going to pick back up on Single Dating Married. And this is going to be our final, our final session of the Single Dating Married series, which is biblical sexuality. Anybody texting a friend already saying, you coming? That's three weeks from now. So I just want to let, give you a little insight on what's to come. But go ahead and open up your Bible. I'm going to be um, speaking today from Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And I'm going to start in verse number 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. So let's read together. Um, this is what it says. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. Let me stop right there. It says like the first ones because Moses had already gotten two stone tablets from the Lord. Um, this, is when Mo, this is when Moses is leading the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They'd been in slavery in Egypt for 20 generations. And he leads them into the wilderness. And now they're camping in a place where God wants to begin to introduce himself to them in a very personal way. And he tried once and Moses came down with written instructions from God, written revelation on who God is and the way that they can live in relationship with him. And when Moses came down from the mountain with this incredible experience, the children of Israel had already chosen to form relationships with a different God. So Moses was, was not too happy about that. Um, the children of Israel, Israel realized we made a mistake. And now Moses is going back up the mountain. And that's where we pick up this story. So Moses got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, 
he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down to the mountain in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name. And what this actually says in the original, in the original language is Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God is a God of love and justice. He's a God of faithful love and he's a God who makes wrong things right. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshipped. Good response, Mo. Then he said, my Lord, if I've indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us. He's talking about Israel. Even though this is a stiff-necked people. (laughs) Go with us, even though they're hard to lead. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. Isn't that beautiful? And the Lord responded, look, I'm making a covenant. Say covenant. In the presence of all your people, I will perform wonders that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work for what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. This is the word of the Lord. It doesn't take um, a sociology degree to realize um, that the world is love-deficient. Wars, genocide, um, political oppression, it is rampant. And, and all of this in a time of profound, unprecedented in history. Th- technological advancement, advancement in sociology and governmental systems. That the last century was the bloodiest century in the history of humanity. Actually, more people died in wars in the 20th century than the rest of human history combined. There's a love deficit. Notice I didn't say there's a romance deficit. Um, Because romance is abundant. Um, Just ask Disney. Just ask um, that app you shouldn't have downloaded last week. Right? It's a swipe away. Romance is. But there is a love deficit. And it's well known, of course, that the Christian God is seen as loving. He's seen as a God of love. But but what that means is a little less known. And this passage in Exodus 34 is when God introduces himself. And I think it's important for us to understand. But before I kind of dive into Exodus 34, I want to take a couple steps back and just just introduce this topic about your relationship with God and your relationship with faith. And this is important for you to understand as we continue. It's this principle right here. You need to know when to reinforce or when to recalibrate your view of God. 
You need to know when to reinforce and when to recalibrate. There's times to reinforce your view of God. There's things we go through in life where the circumstances around us are shouting to us that God is not something that we know he is. That's when we reinforce. That's, that's why the Bible would say something like, those who endure till the end shall be saved. That's, that's when we lay hold of who we have divinely been inspired and has been revealed to us about who he is, what he's like, and what he's doing. That's when we reinforce. But there's other times when we recalibrate. In other words, we recognize there are things in my own thinking or in my own heart that need to be adjusted about who God is. That's, that's where Israel was at in the wilderness when the story we just read. Imagine being a part of a family, a people, millions of people, who'd lived in slavery for 20 generations. You think there were some mindsets that maybe needed to be adjusted. Especially when it came to interacting with authority. They'd never known a benevolent king. They'd never known rulership that had their best interest in mind. They didn't understand what it means to have a law that actually was for their flourishing and their thriving. So they go into the wilderness, and when you read, if you're in your one-year Bible reading plan, and you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's a tendency to just skip on, on to April. <laughs> because those, that's some tough reading. But when, when you get in the mind of someone who's not their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents or great, 20 generations has been oppressed in another nation, there's a lot of reprogramming. And so what God does is he takes his time and he realizes that before, before I move you to the promise, I've got to take everything out of you that will make you abort the promised land when you get there. You won't steward well what I want to give you if you're still thinking like your old place, like a slave. Like Stacy just released. He's, he, wants to, he wants to treat them like children. But if they're still st thinking like slaves, they'll never live well in the land. This is the process that you and I are on in God. It's not just about a one-time decision where we say, okay, I, I say a sinner's prayer and now forever my, my eternity is, is, is sealed. That's important, okay? That's step one. Say one. There's an infinite number of steps. That's step one. The next process is God gets the old nature out and then he, what he does is he sharpens and, and, and reinforces and builds the new nature in us. The you that God actually designed. But it's been covered up and corroded and broken through sin and the brokenness of others. That's the recalibration process. And when that comes to God's own introduction, I mean, if, if you are really wanting to know who God is, don't you think it would be important to, like, look at the way he describes himself, maybe? Instead of just the way other people describe him? That's Exodus 34. This is God described. This is the first time in Scripture God introduces himself to people. Up to this point, we see people interacting with him, but this is the first time he breaks into the human story and directly and personally says, this is my name and this is what I'm like. So before we understand what he's like, we have to realize the parts of him that we understand or think that maybe he's not like. And this is, this is what's important in this recalibration. You currently have an image of God. You currently do. 
you have an image sitting in your mind and in your heart, even if you've never reflected on it before, it doesn't mean it's not there. And your image of God is shaped by what I call the four P's of, of God's image in our heart. It's these right here. Your, the, your image of God is shaped first by your personality. Scott McKnight, the theologian, the New Testament scholar, he, he in his New Testament course, he opens up his New Testament course every semester that he teaches it with, um, with a test that he gives his students. And in, in kind of, it's a self-assessment, and in the self-assessment, they have to fill out like a, what they view their personality as, what they, and then who they think God is. And he's reflected over the years that he's done that test that there is, there is an uncanny connection between the, the way people describe themselves and the way people describe God. Because we like to think God is like the best parts of us. And we bring this into ministry as well. I have ministry friends who are very, like their personality is very flowy. And they're very like, they're, they're very, you know, go spontaneous. They love like call me up on the day and tell me like we're going out that night. Like no planning. I just want, I just want to live on the air. Well, you know what they're into? The moving of the Holy Spirit. Like at any moment he could break in and change. And that's the attribute of God they're most in love with. Then I have people that are black and white. They're justice people, right? It's like you say something, you say something that's just, you know, sort of like abstracty, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Clarify, what exactly do you mean? And what do they love? They love the justice part of God. They love that, that he's, that he's, that he's into orphans and widows, and that's true and undefiled religion, right? As James, the book of James tells us. Our view of God is shaped by ourselves. Second, it's shaped by our people. Um, how, do you, how do I know this? Well, when I look at my kids do something that I do that I never told them to do, that's how I know I'm shaped by my people. The people around me shape my view of God. I've had people come up to me when I talk about the fatherhood of God. And, and you can see the pain in their heart because they have a hard time relating to God as father because their own experience with their natural father. So their view of God is not based on his fatherhood. It's based on their own father. Your people shaped your view of God. Third, your past. Your past shapes your view of God. There are people in here who you've had a loved one who's been in hospital and you've prayed for them. And sadly, they have not been healed. They've not come out of hospital. That's going to shape your view of God, right? Your past shapes. And then fourthly, your practices. Your, your view of God is shaped by what you do not just by what you think. This is why worship is important. This is why getting your body involved is, is important. Uh, and I can prove it to you because at the other church in, in, on Trafford Road, right down there, it seats about 75,000 people, Old Trafford. If you weren't into football at all, but I bought you a season ticket and you and I started attending, you could hate football. But we went every single week together you would eventually start to love it. You'd start to sing the songs. You'd start to learn who our rivals were. You'd start to hate our rivals. Because that kind of devotion is not taught, it's caught. You practice your way into that kind of devotion. This is why what you do with your life and your body matters. God's not interested in, in mindless robots who just keep themselves pure sexually because, oh, look at all the people who just obey me mindlessly. No, he recognizes what you do with your life, what you practice shapes what's important to you, your view on other people, your value system, and where you go in life. 
It shapes you. It's important, your practices. And if this is true, if your view of God are shaped by all these fleeting things, these things that are one way today and another way tomorrow, these things are based on other people's opinion and cultural norms and values and shifting sands, and if we move to a different nation now, all those things would change, right? If, if, then then this, this principle must be true, this next principle right here. Your current image of God includes both fact and fiction. Is that fair to say? I have mine included. So there's, there's ways that you view God now that are spot on. And there's ways that are not. Is that fair? I'm not, I hope that's not offensive to you. There's ways that you, you view God that are both fact or fiction. I know you think sometimes that the thoughts you have about him are perfect thoughts. But even your most accurate thought about him at best is incomplete. Because by nature, he's infinite, and you and I are finite. So how do you know if you're living in a personally or culturally shaped version of God? First, I love that the Bible affirms that this is true about you and I. So it's, I, I'm not trying to shame you. This is just literally the human condition. This verse right here. 1 Corinthians 13. Now, our knowledge is partial and incomplete. Ah. <sighs> feel set free by that thank you Paul but wait a second I'm a godly person I hear from God I hear from him daily I see things in the spirit I've been to heaven I mean whatever your experiences are angels have showed up to me okay well he includes you too even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture a little humility a little dose of humility would be good for you and I right about now so even our greatest and deepest revelations of who God is is still only a portion it's still only a part of who he is. It may be true, but it's not complete. And you know what? That doesn't discourage me. That encourages me. Because I love the part that I have, and I just want more. So how do you know? How do you know if you have this perspective? I love the way Tim Keller answers this question like this, the late Tim Keller. It's this next slide. Oh, let's go back. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. One of the ways you know you're, you are serving a God that you've created is he never disagrees with you. This is the thing about God. There's going to be elements of every culture on planet earth that, that look like him. And there's going to be elements of every culture that don't look like him. And the journey is discovering which is which. So here's the questions you ask. This next slide, right here. Does my God ever disagree with me or even offend me? I know offense is something we, 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 we're so uncomfortable with offense in our culture, we, we've made it illegal. But in the pursuit of, a, of, of truth, if you're not offended, you're not really pursuing truth. Does your God ever disagree with you? Does your God ever ask you to change? Or when you're reading scripture, are the thoughts you already think about him simply reinforced? If you don't open scripture and you're not challenged or changed by it, are you really looking for him, the God who is not you, in it? That's how you know you're seeking the real God. This concept is so important. 
that the great A.W. Tozer said it like this in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. I would argue that our religion today, over the whole, is politics. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Anybody think church is optional after reading this? We tend by a secret law of the soul. This is important. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Here's my summary of what, of what Tozer's trying to say. You are living in response to your image of God, real or perceived. Your chosen career path, the people you choose to hang out with, what you do with your money, the way you dress, what you do on a Sunday morning. I'm not trying to guilt. There's no guilt here. I'm just stating, stating it like it is. You are living in response to your image of God. Okay, so if that's true, then, then how? How do I know? How do I, how do I improve? How do I recalibrate? The good news is, everything I said may be complicated, but the answer is simple, and this is it. This is the answer right here. Your image of God should be rooted in the person of Jesus. John, John 14, Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. So your image of God should be continually recalibrated, refined, polished by the person of Jesus. And each new generation has the task of interpreting and living this out. We never get it sorted forever. It's the beauty of Christianity is that every person has their own journey with God. You don't inherit faith, right? So I just want us to pray a prayer together that that was written many, many centuries ago by a psalmist. And this is the prayer in Psalms 139. It says this, this next slide. Search me. Can we just say this together, if you mean it? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? So now that you're set up for recalibration, anybody set up for recalibration in the room? Let's look at the most striking word God uses to describe himself in his own introduction. It's the only word he uses twice. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love 
to a thousand generations. You'll notice the repeating word is faithful love, but that's one word in the Hebrew, and it's this word right here. It's the word chesed. Can you say that? Chesed. Well done. You're speaking Hebrew. And through, through the centuries, translators have used different words to translate this. Um, kindness, love, loyalty, favor, devotion, mercy. But over time, they realize um, there isn't a word-for-word translation. If you, if, you're, if you speak multiple languages, you know that, that there's often words that just, I uh, can't really get at it. And so eventually they went, we're going to have to go to two, we're going to have to move to two words. And so in the translation I just read, it was faithful love. But for some of us, go back, go back one slide if you could. But for some people, it's covenant love, steadfast love. So it's, it's, it's different ways. And this word chesed is used 246 times in the Old Testament. The verse we just read in Exodus 34 is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. The other biblical writers were so enamored with this verse that they quoted it over and over and over and over. Why does, why does Christianity have a reputation of having a loving God? Because the way God introduced himself. The only God of the ancient world who based his whole interactions with humanity based on covenantal love. It's not a meritocracy. It's not performance-based. It's based on God's choice to love humanity. I love this right here. Daniel Block explains this word chesed like this. Hebrew chesed cannot be translated with one English word. This is a covenant term. Wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, this is important, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. Chesed is that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage that it might bring to the one who expresses it. This quality is expressed fundamentally in action rather than word or emotion. Like that old song, love, love, love is a verb. Hesed is action before its word or feeling. Will Kynes describes it this way, the New Testament scholar. Hesed is never merely an abstract feeling of goodwill. It's not, it's not like God's in heaven like thinking good thoughts about you. He's not like, hmm. That's the God of love. That's, that's not what he's doing. It's never merely an abstract feeling of goodwill. But always, always, all 246 times that it's used, it always entails practical action. God is vastly superior to the Israelites, and yet through his covenant, he binds himself to them eternally to do them good. This is what Hesed is. Look at this next slide. God's Hesed is not based on your own love or performance, but on God's own character and covenant. He Hesed's you because he chose to. And there's nothing you can do about it. 
the psalm writers, David himself, was so blown away by the reality of God's chesed that he wrote this in Psalms 36. How priceless your chesed is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream, for the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. Spread your chesed over those who know you and your righteousness over the upright in heart. Do you think Manchester has this in mind when they think about Christianity? This is what our faith is. It's living in God's chesed. So what happens when we taste chesed? What happens? It lifts us up and makes us care about things other people scoff at. I love this. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He responds to the thought A.W. Tozer was mentioning. I, real, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is, no, is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. But the promise of glory is the promised, almost incredible, hard to believe, and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us, you and me, who, real, who he any of us who really chooses shall actually survive God's examination, shall find approval, shall actually please Him, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, Lewis says. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. This is the reality of God's perspective towards you. David said it like this in Psalm 63, My lips will glorify you because your faithful love, your chesed, is better than life. David is saying this not as someone who didn't have anything. He, have, he had what many of us, maybe in this room, aspire to, certainly outside of the church. He had ultimate power. He had wealth. He had global renown. He had an abundance of sexual pleasure. I mean, whatever he wanted, he had. So when he says your love is better than life, 
He wasn't comparing God's love to my life. (laughs) He was comparing God's love to his own life. And yet he says, compared to that life, your love is better. Your love exceeds it. I love this thought in in 2 Corinthians 3 through 10. Do we have that back there on the slides? No. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, 3 through 10, Paul says this. I'm just going to read it to you. Paul's describing his life following Jesus, and this is what he says. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Look, this is how he describes his ministry. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses. This is a great resume so far. What if this was on your LinkedIn profile? In beatings, imprisonments, and riots. In hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. In truthful speech and in the power of God. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. Genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown. Dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. But do you know what comes before that list? Paul's motivation. And he says it in four words, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Christ's love compels us. Have you, an ex- have you experienced a love that compels you to face beatings, scourgings, imprisonment, sleepless nights? And just in case you think Paul is like some poet who just pulls love out of strange objects or something, um, we're talking about Paul, the religious extremist who was killing people before he became a Christian. This dude's not sitting around contemplating the abstract parts of life. Something interrupted his world so profoundly that he gave up religious extremism to devote himself to the task of loving others. And it was divine chesed, Paul says. And the thing about this love is it messes you up for anything else. In case you think it's a soft thing, like I'm, this is Father's Day, I've, you know, something maybe a bit more manly. It messes you up for anything. It confronts every part of your life and faith that's not built on love. So maybe you're religious in the room. Maybe you would consider yourself someone who's lived a good life, maybe morally superior. You give money to people in need, or you go to church regularly. You're better than your neighbor, whatever the things that we tell ourselves. The thing about said love is because covenant love is unconditional, it's previous to your religious duty, it's affronted by performance-oriented affection. It's not light towards that. This is why the primary enemies of Jesus were not the sinner but the religious. 
His love was given to all, but it was inaccessible to those who wanted to pay for it. It was inaccessible to those. Of course, they didn't pay with money, but they paid with their morality, with their performance, which they believed entitled them to receive God's love. You see, God's love's not light. It's not airy-fairy. It's covenant love. But some of us in here, maybe we're greasy gracers. So we know on some level that you're already loved by God, but you use it as a license to live the way you want. So love for you is just, oh yeah, I mean, it's whatever. God forgives me, loves me. Maybe that's the category. The problem with that is, chesed is a covenant love, which means it's a jealous love and demands all. It is affronted by, a, by um, a love that is unreciprocated. So it demands all of us. And maybe you're irreligious in the room. You have no, no faith. The th here's the thing about covenant love for you. Is it's relentless. It's sacrificial. It's chasing you. He's already chosen you. There's nothing you can do about it. His love is unconditional and it's already sacrificed for you. You can't avoid it. It'll start popping up in billboards. It'll pop up in songs on the radio. Yes, songs that, that aren't about Jesus. You're going to start hearing it in your friend's text messages. It's going to hound you. You're going to start hearing somebody that's praying for you. You're going to see it on a television show. It's going to chase you in a way. Someone's going to invite you to ramp church. You're going to want to come back. You won't understand why. You've always hated religious people. What is that? It's not because there's great church or great branding or a smooth communicator or great singing, and hopefully we have all those things. But that's not it. That's not what once you come. If you want great singing, there's plenty on YouTube. If you want great preaching, there's better communicators than me all over you, thousands of them. The difference is... Those things are all calling to you about the covenantal love of God. Come to the Father's house. But to the Christians, covenantal love is not safe. It's compelling. It's satisfying. It's generous. It's unyielding to your resistance and your offense. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. It's jet fuel for purpose-filled li purpose living. It's an expense, all expense paid, travel to the front lines of mission. It's acceptance in the face of ridicule. It's satisfaction in the face of less than enough. It's hope in the face of confusion and loss. It's generosity in the face of lack. Chesed is all you need. That's why David would say it's better than life itself. When you look at a believer's life and you there's just something about it you simply can't explain, you're seeing the results of chesed. You don't, when, when you can't comprehend their devotion or the level of sacrifice, when you don't understand why they keep praying because you hate praying, it's because they've received chesed. When you, when you can't understand why they stick around for that, that workmate that just gets on your nerves. And it gets on their nerves too, and you know it. And they keep, they keep talking to them. 
That's the covenantal love of God. They've experienced it. And, and it's what John tells us. When we feel his love, we're compelled to love others the same. Some of you are going to have an experience with the love of God today for the first time. Are you ready? So how? What does this look like? What does this look like on just an ongoing life level? How do you walk in chesed? I'm going to give you three ways. There's many ways, but I'm going to give you three. These, these are fundamental, essential, okay? These have to be a part of your life. And the first one is you need to look at Jesus and when I mean look, like not think about him and imagine him. I mean, this is what I mean, whole being orientation around the person of Jesus. This is why we worship in church. You, you know, we don't, we don't just sing songs in here because it's the religious thing to do, right? Singing has a way of unifying my whole being towards a focal point. So the reason we sing is not because we like the, the style of music. Half the songs we do here, I don't like. And I lead this church. I like the one we're singing to. And I know that when I sing to him, something happens in my being. All of me starts to orient around a new reality. And my life, just because just, just I'm a preacher, doesn't mean my life is better than... I mean, I have trials and struggles and hardships and stress. And yes, I woke up at 2 this morning with stress on my mind. I'm a human. And so when I come in here, there's some days. This was last Sunday for me. I told somebody this after, after service. I woke up Sunday morning desperate to get to church. I needed to be around the people of God, a worshiping people whose whole being was oriented around a reality that, that I needed and I was not feeling personally. And something happened when I came into the house of God with the people of God. You did something in me. And what happened is we looked at Jesus together. And it wasn't a great style of music or great singing. And we've got to get out of this thing where our primary relationship when we walk in this building is between the stage and the people. When you are living in God's love, you don't care what's happening on stage. Because you are so enamored with the chesed of God, you, you want them to get out of the way. That is what this is about. It's about looking at Jesus deeply. Longing for Him. Gazing at Him. The reason I read scripture is because I'm looking for Him. Where are you? I need that. I need your hased today because I'm living based on lower, lesser appetites and realities. And I need to raise the source of my life today. You need to look at Jesus every day. And can I just give you some, some more instruction? More than every day. Recently, I've set alarms on my phone reminding me throughout the day, you need to stop and look at Jesus. And my kids think I'm crazy because I put the, the alarm tone is are like monks singing. So in the corner of the house, all of a sudden, you think it's right. What 
what's it reminding to do? You're getting your eyes on earthly things, Joe. Remember the source of all life. Look at Jesus daily. Number two, be where he's loved. I, I just cannot stress enough how unimportant ticking a box off for church attendance is. I just cannot stress enough. But I, I equally cannot stress enough how important it is to be with people who love him. There is nothing holy about ticking a box, but there is something holy about the people of God. And it's why, it's why the writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembling together. Something happens when you get around people who love him. This is why we have prayer together on Sunday mornings. I, I've walked into prayer times needing something, and there's a word from God comes from the platform. Anybody experience that? I, sometimes I get more joy out of watching someone love him than I'm loving him at the moment. I see someone worship, I'm like, whoa, he's got to be real, because I know that person. Just kidding. It, there's something amazing about seeing people enjoy God. And you need to be where he's loved. And then, then number three, you need to find real needs. If you're not around deep, genuine needs, you forget that nothing earthly can meet them. If you're, if you're stuck in whatever bubble is your life, and some of us are stuck in a middle-class bubble, we're just stuck there. And we never see real need. We never experience real needs. We forget how radical the love of God is. How demanding it is. How all-encompassing it is. We forget the need that it is. We forget that it is light shining in the dark world. You need to get around real needs often and feel your own inability to meet them. That will make you desperate, said of God. Look at Jesus daily. Be where he's loved weekly. Find real needs often. You can go ahead and come up, musicians. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I'm gonna, I'm, this is where I'm ending. This is Paul's prayer for his church in Ephesus. And remember, this is the religious extremist murderer Paul, okay? This was his prayer for the church he was leading. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's so interesting to me that Paul's prayer, his prayer for his people was not that they would feel the love of God but that they would have the power to comprehend it. Why do you need the power of God to comprehend God's love? 
because it is so weighty, it's so transformative, it's so life-changing that you actually need His help to comprehend it. <laughs> Your human receptacles unredeemed, unsanctified by the, by the working of the Holy Spirit, they are not able to even receive what God wants to give you. You have to, He has to give you the grace to even see and understand and comprehend His love. And some of you today, you've been feeling a stirring this morning already because God is, He is ready because you are willing. He's always been ready. But this morning, you're willing to receive the, the love of God in a way you never have before. Stand up on your feet all around this room. Just stay focused. Stay focused. I'm kind of reorient. Just keep your heart on Jesus. Keep your mind on Jesus. Every heart in this room, every mind, stayed on Jesus. Some of you are leaving with a new faith this morning. You came in unknowing salvation was yours. But the kind of love that cost you everything, you've not known. You couldn't say like David, your love is better than life. God wants to reveal that kind of love to you today. The kind of love that messes you up. <laughs> Father, give us a grace. Father, I pray like Paul. Give us the power to comprehend, the power to understand, the ability to understand your love. Increase our capacity to receive and understand. To receive from you what you want to give us today. We're going to sing together. And as we sing this song, I just I want to encourage you to step into this reality. Gazing at the one who loves you, who knew you before the foundations of the world. I'm going to come pray over you before we close. Come on.